there. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. You'll recall last week we looked at the last part of chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. And in that section, Paul's commanding Timothy to cleanse or separate himself from vessels of dishonor in order that he might be a vessel of honor, useful to the Lord and ready for every good work. He also commands him to flee youthful lust on the one hand. He tells him what to flee from and to pursue, on the other hand, Christian virtue, the virtues of righteousness, faithfulness, love, and peace. He also advises him on how to handle those within the church that are rising up to oppose him. Not only Timothy, but every man of God needs to be kind to all, capable of teaching, skilled in the scriptures, patient when wronged, and gently correcting those that are in opposition. The point of that being that as the man of God responds in that way with the message of truth and the message of the gospel, he can deliver these folks and bring them to a knowledge of the truth and deliver them from the captivity of the devil. So chapter 2 really ends on a note of optimism, despite the difficulty that Timothy is facing in Ephesus. But as we turn to our passage tonight, we see that despite that note of optimism, Paul's warning Timothy that things are going to get worse, a lot worse, before they get better. This is in keeping with Paul's pattern throughout this letter. We've talked about this some. As you read through Second Timothy, he on the one hand will exhort Timothy to faithfulness and what he's called to be as a man of God. And then he'll turn and say, here's some guys that are, are not being loyal and not being faithful and you need to watch out for them. And then he'll turn back to Timothy and say, but you, follow my example. Do the things that you've learned from me. We'll see that again next week. This is the first time that I've seen this in my own study of 2 Timothy, but that alternating line of thought runs all the way through the letter. He exhorts Timothy to faithfulness in his role despite difficulty and opposition even within the church, but he warns him at the same time about that very opposition so that he can properly prepare for it and meet it when it comes. So we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. I want to start back up in chapter 2, verse 24, just especially so you can see the contrast as we get to to verse 1 of chapter 3. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. But, and here's where the contrast is, there's the optimism of those that come to the knowledge of the truth and escape the snare of the devil in the last part of chapter 2. Here's the other side of the story. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness or piety, although they have denied its power, And avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning 
and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. If you have your outline in front of you, you'll see we divided this passage up into the character of the last days, difficult in verse 1. The reason for the difficulty is godly men, godless men, I'm sorry, in verses 2 through 5a. The command concerning such godless men in verse 5b. And the demeanor and destiny of those godless men in verses 6 through 9. Let's look first at the character of the last days in verse 1. Paul says, realize or know this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Now, Paul is not giving Timothy here brand new information. This is something that he already knew, but something he's saying you need to constantly be aware of this. And we need to, under, or we need to define, really, what is meant here by last days. We hear that phrase a lot, particularly in the Old Testament, in connection with the day of the Lord. We think of it typically as the, the last seven years of great tribulation and difficulty prior to Christ's return. I don't think it needs to be confined to those last seven years in this context. I want to explain why. In fact, the seeds of what Paul is talking about are already present in Ephesus as he writes to Timothy. That's clear in verse 5 when after describing the character of these godless men who make the last days difficult, Paul says, you, Timothy, in your day, avoid such men as these. It's also clear from other places that we see in the New Testament that the New Testament writers sensed that they were living in the last days. Let me give you just a few examples of that. The Apostle John writing in 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Peter in 1 Peter 1.5 says, Those of us who believe are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is, the coming of Christ is seen as imminent and the completion of God's program of salvation Peter, I think, was looking forward to in his own day. Paul is the same way. We read about when he's talking about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he talks about the fact that the dead in Christ will rise first, that we who are left, we who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul puts himself in that crowd when he says we. He's looking for Christ to come back. So the description in the verses that follow is broad enough that folks at different times in the history of the church have thought that, they, that these things that Paul's laying out were being fulfilled in their time. Every generation has. We can certainly see many of these things that we'll look at in these uh, first several verses as being fulfilled in our own day. So I think the, the way to understand the last days in this context is that they began at Christ's first coming. They continue through the present age of the church. And they will climax ultimately with a great apostasy that Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians that takes place after the church is raptured and the man of lawlessness, the false Christ, is revealed during the day of the Lord. So I think Paul's writing this prophecy to 45 believers of every age in the church, of every generation, against the apostasy that takes place in their day 
and that would include us as well. Now, Paul describes the character of these days as halapos is the Greek term. It's a word that can be translated as difficult, dangerous, even violent. And again, you see those kinds of characteristics in the verses that follow. Believers will face perplexing problems and difficult duties because of increasing iniquity, not outside the church, but within. That leads us into this next section, verses 2 through 5a. The reason for the difficulty is godless men. And when we say godless men, ladies, you don't get off the hook here. We mean men as created male and female, and that's going to become more clear even as we read through the passage. Uh, He's just talking about mankind in general. Timothy has already been facing opposition, and Paul has been consistently warning him about these opponents in the first two chapters of this letter, as well as in his first letter, 1 Timothy. But he needs to know that opposition to the truth will grow even more intense, and that the evil evil men who do not know the Lord will arise and increase within the church. Paul goes on to describe what these men will be like, and he uses 18 different characteristics. We want to walk through these. Uh, Some of them are are clear. They're uh, the gloss that's been given for the Greek term is clear, but we just want to expound on them a little bit and maybe make some connections between them that you wouldn't necessarily see on a first reading. First, he says that these men will be lovers of self. That's the good, that is a good one to head the list because it is love of self that is the root of all sorts of sin. It's the essence of sin. It means self-centered instead of God-centered. And it's the very opposite of agape love, which does not seek its own. Secondly, they're lovers of money. And if you think about that, what's the means by which a lot of our self-love is gratified? It's through money. It's through things that can be bought. Paul has already warned Timothy about the love of money in his first letter. He says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Jesus said that you cannot serve God and mammon. And it's not wealth itself that's evil. Uh, There are many examples of godly men in the Bible who were wealthy and who were blessed by God with wealth. It's the attitude towards wealth. It's the love of money that's the root of all sorts of evil. And, And obviously these men are lovers of money. The next three terms are related to each other. We see that these men are boastful. They speak of themselves and their own accomplishments and give themselves honor that they do not deserve. They're arrogant. That is an attitude that is disdainful towards others. And then they're revilers. Literally, the word here is blasphemers. And this third term is the means by which uh, their attitudes of boastfulness and arrogance is expressed. These men are abusive and scornful in their language, not only to men, but also to God. Next, they're disobedient to or rebellious toward parents. Now, you might think that that's a little bit out of place for a description, a list that's primarily talking about grown men. But consider this. Disobedience to parents is the fountain from which disobedience to all authority flows. It's the fountain from which it flows. And the way an adult treats his parents is a clear indication of their character. These men are ungrateful, again, not only towards parents who have done so much for them, but also towards others, and especially towards God. They're unholy. They don't consider anything sacred. They have no regard for their duty towards God as their maker. 
redeemer, sustainer, and judge. They're unloving. And the Greek term here has the idea of the absence even of familial love, even for the natural affection that people share as members of the same family. If they're lacking that, how much more will they lack love towards anyone else? One writer put it this way, by their indifference to and utter disregard for the welfare of those with whom they are connected by natural ties, by family ties, they sink sink lower than the beast. Even the animals care for their own, and these people are beyond that. Their lack of love in turn, makes them irreconcilable. They refuse to enter into any kind of agreement to end hostilities, even when there's opportunity to do that. They don't want to do that. They're malicious gossips. There's another interesting term here. It's actually the plural term of diabolos, which is the term from which we get our name for the devil. The term means slanderer or accuser, And we can look at Revelation 12 to get some uh, information about how Satan does that. Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10 says this. The great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old who is called the devil. Again, diabolos there. And Satan, Satan meaning the adversary, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. That's one of the things that Satan does, is accuse God's own people against or to God day and night. And it's interesting that it's the use of this term for these godless men in 2 Timothy 3 point out the fact that they're really imitating the devil as they constantly invent and spread accusations against others. Let's look at the next three characteristics. It says they're without self-control. They're slaves of their own lusts and passions. They do whatever it takes to fulfill those lusts and passions. They're brutal or fierce like wild animals in their attitudes and actions. They're actually haters of good. That is, they hate any sort of virtue anything that would be good or beneficial to others. They're treacherous or traitorous. They betray confidence or trust that's put in them. They're reckless, meaning they're rash, and they uh, plunge ahead to do things particularly evil without any consequences or thought of the consequences of their actions. They then become conceited or puffed up by their own pride. No one can tell them anything or correct them because they already know it all. Finally, it says that they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They love their own pleasures. They're wholly controlled by those pleasures. They're even willing to sacrifice for the satisfaction of their own pleasures, but they're unwilling to give up anything because of their love for God because they have no love for God. And notice the way that this list of characteristics began back in verse 2 with a love of self and ends in verse 4 with a lack of love for God. Their love for self, their self-centeredness, and all the evils that go with that shuts out any genuine love for God. Now, verse 5 describes their religious conviction or affiliation. It says that they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So these are people, these people are not ignorant of the truth. They know the truth. In fact, they claim some association with Christianity. 
These are people that are within the church, as is these opponents that Paul has been advising Timothy about all the, through, all the way through the letter. They say they know God, and they even maintain some outward form of piety, but there's no substance to their claim. Their profession is empty. Their life is powerless because they haven't truly been regenerated. Their depraved and vicious actions demonstrate to whom they really belong. It's interesting that as you read this list, there is a lot of parallel between the characteristics that are described here and the one in Romans 1, the list in Romans 1. But there is a distinct difference. In Romans 1, Paul is sketching out a picture of paganism. These people are described in Romans 1 as having a knowledge of God through the creation, to be sure, but apart from the gospel, apart from the divine revelation that God has given. But in 2 Timothy 2, the picture of those is of those who know God through his creation, but have also been enlightened by the truth. It is the fearful portrayal of an apostate Christendom, a new paganism masquerading under the name of Christianity. What is Timothy's responsibility toward these godless men? Verse 5b says, avoid them. Avoid such men, stay away from them, don't be corrupted by them, by their behavior, by their teaching, and watch out for others. Don't let them corrupt others within the church. The force of the Greek here is continually turn away from them, and there's a connection here in verse 5 with the command back up in verse 1. Keep on realizing the difficulty of the last days and keep on turning away from the apostates who make it up. Now, you might ask the question, I ask this question, how do you square that up with the command back up in chapter 2 that Paul is to, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth? I think you do have to start there. But there is a point at which men will reach a certain state of depravity, not unlike Romans 1, in which it's useless to continue to instruct them. They reach a stage of depravity and rebellion where further instruction is useless, and that's the point that these folks have reached in chapter 3. They may have started out as still capable of correction and knowledge of the truth, and Timothy can still deal with them in that way. And some may repent. You have to start there. But if they proceed further in their error and they're confirmed in their rebellion, the only recourse is to turn away from them. Again, Timothy was capable of seeing the early development of these things in his own day. And we certainly see in our own day that the situation has gotten worse instead of better. I think that's exactly the way the scripture portrays it. Every generation sees decline in the church that was not there at an earlier point in time in their own generation. And as you think about the trend and you think about where we're headed as you get to the book of Revelation in particular, that's when the apostasy is going to be the worst. We read Revelation 13, we see that there is a counterfeit Christ. There is a counterfeit Holy Spirit, the false prophet. Those two are empowered by Satan himself as the ultimate counterfeiter. And his man, the man of lawlessness, rules over the entire world in both a religious and political role. So that's where the world is headed. Now that sounds really pessimistic. I don't think uh, you have to keep in mind that there is an age beyond the present age. I don't think the Bible itself is pessimistic at all about the current age. It doesn't deny the fact that the gospel continues to spread around the world and God continues to call people out through the gospel. But the present age is headed toward what the book of Revelation describes and that's not a pretty picture 
course, the book of Revelation also describes the coming of Christ. So overall, it is very optimistic. Christ wins in the end, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Paul's given us a broad description of these godless men in verses 2 through 5. Now he moves to give us some specific examples of how they conduct themselves and of their destiny in verses 6 through 9. These verses describe the work of these godless men, their victims, their character, and their destiny. First, their work in verse 6. It says, for among them are those who enter into, and the verb there really, I don't think the NAS does justice to it. The idea is they slip in. They kind of creep in and sneak in. They sneak into households and captivate weak women. These folks specialize in captivating women, and through that means they seek to gain influence over entire households as their followers. Perhaps it's by winsome manners. Perhaps it's by a slick exterior. They bring these women completely under their influence. Now Paul goes on to describe their victims, these women that are mentioned in the first part of verse 6. The term used here is really a, a derogatory term. It says it literally is translated silly women. Those of you that have a King James Bible, uh, that's how it's translated there. Paul goes on to describe these women in three ways. First, he says that they're weighed down by sins. And the picture here is that their conscience is burdened by guilt from a variety of sins. And they're uneasy with the consequences of those sins that makes them very susceptible to these false teachers. Very vulnerable to these men who are smooth talkers and who offer them all kinds of answers but don't really deal with their sin problem. It says also that these women are led on by various impulses or lust. They, they too are continually controlled by their own desires and cravings. And again, uh, I think we normally hear that term lust and we think sexual behavior and that's part of it, but it's not limited to that. It includes all kinds of cravings. And I think the context here, and you know, we're speculating a little bit because we're not given good detail, but it would include sins like the desire to be considered well-informed or knowledgeable. Uh, again, they would seek out or be susceptible to these false teachers for that reason. The desire to receive the flattering personal attention of these teachers of so-called advanced truth and a craving of new experiences that would flatter their ego. Hence, they're described, these women are, as always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth there being the same phrase that we saw at the end of chapter 2. At every opportunity, these women are eager to receive instruction from these godless men, and as part of their craving for something new, they turn to every new doctrine that comes along. This, in turn, keeps them from ever coming to the knowledge of the truth, the message of the gospel, and all of its implications. One writer put it this way, running after error and at the same time living in sin is not a good way to find truth. And that's the picture that's painted here in this uh, chapter 3. Now Paul turns back to focus on the character of the apostate men themselves. And he does this by comparing them to two Old Testament characters, Jonas and Jambres. Now these names are not actually recorded for us in the Old Testament. But Jewish tradition says that these two men were the head of the magicians that opposed uh, Moses. And we see them showing up. Again, the names aren't mentioned, but we see these magicians showing up 
in Exodus chapter 7, verses 11 and 12 says, say that when Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. I always think about that scene in the Ten Commandments where they did that. And again, there was a demonstration. The magicians had the ability to turn those staffs into snakes. But God made clear who was the big, the big dog or the big snake, if you will, and ate the other ones up. They did the same thing when Moses turned the Nile into blood. If you look in verse 22 of chapter 7, it says, The magicians of Egypt did the same, and he's talking about turning the Nile into blood, with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So you can see what's happening here. These magicians are doing the same thing that Moses did with the works of power, and it's hardening Pharaoh's heart against the truth and against Moses as God's spokesman. So similarly, Paul's drawing a comparison here, and he's making two points of comparison. First, he's saying that just as these men oppose the truth by their counterfeit miracles, that's Jonas and Jambres, so these self-seeking fraudulent men now oppose the truth of the gospel and its messengers. And secondly, just as Jonas and Jambres served to harden Pharaoh's heart against the voice of God through his servant Moses, so these seducers are hardening the hearts of those who uh, are, are seduced by them, and they're hardening the hearts of their, those that listen to them against the truth. Paul goes on to describe these men as having a permanently depraved mind and rejected with regard to the faith. Again, that's an indication that they profess to be believers, and yet their faith is found wanting. It's counterfeit. These men are clearly unbelievers and imposters. And the passage that we look at next week will say just that, that evil men, will, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. But in spite of all that, and here comes the consolation, in spite of a very bleak picture that Paul has painted in these first eight verses, the consolation is the bad guys don't win in the end. Certainly there has been, even within the first century church, a significant spread of error. There's so many letters and books in the New Testament where people are dealing with false teaching within the church. I personally, I've been thinking about this as I've worked through Second Timothy. I just want to go through and find out, I think it'll be easier to find out how many books don't deal with false teaching. It's not that many. And certainly we've seen throughout the history of the church, and even down to our own day, that this is an ongoing problem. It started all the way back in Paul's day. It started in the first 20 years of the church, and it's only gotten worse over time. And again, as we continue to read through the, Old Te- Old Test- through the New Testament to the very end, we see that it gets even worse than what it is now. But ultimately, these men will be exposed for what they are. Their sins will find them out. And just as the magicians who opposed Moses initially had some success in uh, imitating his works of power, they not only were able to turn their rods into snakes and the Nile into blood, they also, if you'll remember, were able to bring frogs up onto the land, just as Moses had. Although I don't know why they would do that. That made things worse instead of better. Uh, But they were not thinking clearly. But ultimately, they were overpowered by God's power through Moses. And so it will be with these apostates. Again, it would be that way for the apostates in Paul and Timothy's day. 
It's that way today. Certainly there are many uh, apostate teachers within the church today who have been exposed for what they are, and we've seen that in our own day. Uh, It will be ultimately with the ultimate false teacher, the false Christ, he will be exposed and defeated for what he is. You might read this tonight and think, wow, that's, that's a pretty pessimistic picture of Christianity. You know, isn't the power of the gospel such that it's going to run all over the world and save people all over the world? And it is, and it has, and it's going to continue to do that. But I think there's another way to look, even at this passage, that can be encouraging, believe it or not, and that is that things are happening exactly the way God said it would. If you look at the picture today and you look at what's going on in the church, you can see the very things that Paul's describing and that God, God speaking through Paul is describing some, you know, over 1,900 years ago. And yet, even in the midst of this very dark picture, God is still on his throne. Christ is still building his church. The Holy Spirit is working all over the world to sanctify people in his truth. We had a guy today that spoke to our missions team, and Justin introduced him this morning. Samuel and Ruth Thomas were here with us. He is an Egyptian pastor. He grew up in the Coptic church in Egypt, and it was fascinating to us uh, as we listened to him to realize that they, the Coptic church does not preach the gospel. They don't even talk about Christ. They don't even open their Bibles. And he came to know the Lord through a revival meeting and came to to hear the true gospel of Christ. He'd never heard it before growing up in the, in the Coptic church. He himself has planted at least ten churches, and his goal is to plant a church in every state, they call them states, in the country of Egypt. And that kind of story is being replicated all over the world. We don't hear about that in the news. We don't hear about the advance of true Christianity the way that we do all the other terrible events it's always the bad news that gets the most play but we know that that's happening because the bible tells us so there is nothing that can thwart the plan of god including the consummation of his redemption program consummating with the return of christ and i think eric even alluded to it in his prayer god uses even evil men and even evil spirits to accomplish his purpose It demonstrates his sovereignty, and it demonstrates his power and the power of the gospel to overcome sin and adversity and opposition. Now next week we'll see, consistent with the pattern, we'll see that Paul turns back to Timothy and says, look, it is dark times right now, and it's going to get worse. But he encourages Timothy. He says, you keep doing what you're doing. You stay faithful in the ministry of God's word. And I think that's the lesson for us as well. We don't need to be overcome by the difficulty of these days. We don't need to be overcome by the news reports that we get of the way things are changing in our own country, particularly towards Christianity. We need to expect these things because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And at the same time, we can still be faithful and we can still have great confidence that the word of God is bearing fruit. It's bearing fruit all over the world. And it's bearing fruit where we are today. And all those that God has chosen from the foundation of the world to know Christ will come to know him. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have told us in advance the way things are 
in our day the way things will be in the future. Uh, And this is part of your plan. We recognize that uh, even as Christians today, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They'll be opposed because we still live in a world system that's controlled by Satan. And yet we recognize, too, that greater is the one that is in us than he who is in the world. And by the Spirit, by your Spirit that dwells in us, and by your Word, we can overcome the evil one. We can be lights in the midst of darkness. We can walk faithfully in the midst of difficult days. And we can be ultimately optimistic as we look beyond the great tribulation that's coming and look to the victory of Christ look to being with him, to ruling and reigning with him, and then ultimately to be in a new heavens and new earth that is free not only from the curse of sin, but even from the very presence of sin. We thank you for the way that you've laid this out in your word. And again, we recognize that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And I just pray that you would help us to be gentle in our dealings with all people, but to recognize, too, that there are some that will oppose no matter what we do. And we have to leave that with you. Thank you for the time we've had together tonight, Father. Strengthen us to walk faithfully before you and to look to the return of Christ. We recognize that we have responsibilities in our daily routine and through the week to honor you at whatever our hand finds to do. But we also look forward to that day when Christ will come and make all things right. We pray this in his name. Amen.